Welcome to Be More Super the Podcast. Up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. An action-packed podcast where we'll discuss all things entertainment. You're the answer to are we alone in the universe? Conventions, prop collecting, cosplay, interviews, reviews, and so much more. The show starts with host Brian Gardner right now. So on this episode of Be More Super, the podcast, um, I've got an awesome guest. Uh, this guest has been in so many shows, I could reel them off for, for weeks. It's a wonderful actor, writer, director and musician, <laughs> Neil Jackson. And um, welcome to the show, sir. I'm really excited to uh, have you on. Right. Thanks for having me on here, mate. It is a pleasure. And... Um, the reason why I laughed at the end of mu- the musician is because I only discovered just the last couple of days that you brought out an album, and I've got to say um, I've got a new favourite song, and we'll speak about it later because it's actually got some relevance to me and my fam, fam- for family, and it's just lovely. My wife heard it and just thought, "Wow, that's amazing!" So uh, we'll have a, a, a chinwag about that uh, very, very <laughs> shortly. Uh, but before we get the interview rolling, um, like I ask all my guests at the moment, unfortunately, we're in a pandemic. Everything's all up in the air. But from your side, how have you kept positive over the last like 18 months? And how have you been, you know, moving forwards? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? I mean, it's like um, I had the busiest three and a half years of my career leading up to the uh, the pandemic hitting where mm. I was come back to and really busy which was amazing, but of course that comes with a price. It meant that I was constantly away from home and I was constantly away for a girlfriend and we got a dog uh, in the end of 2019. And um, and uh, I was worried that I'm gonna be away again and suddenly the pandemic hit. And initially it was a relief. Mm. You know, I think, especially when we got the two week notice, you can have two weeks of lockdown. I think there was a little piece of uh, relief that we all get a two-week holiday that stretched into months and months and months and months. One of the one of the the very good things that happens is I, I got to spend time at home with my dog and with uh, my girlfriend and just kind of being a bee. I'd only recently moved to Vancouver. I lived. Uh, I moved to Vancouver at the beginning of uh, 2019, um, and then instantly went away for ten months' work on back-to-back jobs. Mm. So. Vancouver, so it got me a chance to be in Vancouver. But then the other side of it is I've always written um, uh, films and TV, but trying to squeeze in time around the various projects that I had made it difficult to get the projects going because I'm just snatching time. And suddenly I had this gulf of time. So the, the producing partner that I work with, a guy called Russell Gray, we talked about we've got four months. Initially they set up until July. We've got, we've got four months, so let's crack one story and complete another script. And so I did that, and then things rolled on, and things rolled on, and things rolled on. And uh, over the last year and a half, I've been able to complete two TV shows and two feature films that have been rattling around my little grey matter. <laughs> but it's time to work on them. And I, I love writing. I, I love mm. writing probably more than I love acting. Um, just the, the idea of taking a story from inception to completion is just a really exciting, creative journey for me. And one of the gifts of COVID was getting to spend time working on my creativity as a writer. And uh, we now have four scripts that are out there in the industry being read at various levels of development, which is super exciting for me. Mm-hmm. 
And I've got to say, I mean, when everything stopped and every, everything went on lockdown, um, you know, my first thoughts were how creative people are going to be over the next year or, or, or two or however long it was going to go on for, which it is still sort of going on. And um, what wonderful shows and films we're going to see on our screens. And, it, you know, we're going to get some positivity out of, you know, everything that's happened. But uh, so a boy from Luton uh, to Hollywood. I mean, how did it all start for you? Because reading your biography, uh, I've got to say it, it was just from potentially, you know, joining the Marines to boxing to, you know, I mean, how how did you get the bug for acting? Um, was that your passion? Was that what you wanted to do? I mean, as you've seen from reading it, it, it's a really twisty, turny little journey that I went on that um, I wouldn't change anything about it. Um, but it definitely wasn't a direct route. Uh, thankfully, my family. Um, I was acting in school plays, but before that, I was a bit of a reckless kid, and I was I, I, I was a restless and reckless kid. I was one of those kids that liked disrupting the class as much as possible, and a big part of that was the fact that I was under undiagnosed dyslexic. So I hated being in classrooms, especially hated English class. Mm. Um, class you have to read out loud from books and the moment the teacher called my my name I could hear the kind of snickers and the, and, the, and the elbow jabs from the other kids in school because my form of dyslexia the middle letters switch around mm. and so I would read books whatever we were reading Tessa the D'Urbervilles or whatever dry tome we had and um, I would really be struggling to get the words out on the page and so because that gave me embarrassment, gave me shame and gave me feelings of anxiety, I would act up and I would play up. And um, I asked when we started doing our GCSEs, I wanted to do music because I loved music, but I also wanted to do drama, um, primarily because I'd heard that the drama class was just a DOS. You just played games and ran around. I was like, that's the perfect outlet for me. Mm -hmm. But in you were only able to do one of the arts. And I'd already started uh, doing uh, music and so I had to do a, a language and it was the same with French um, reading aloud caused me real anxiety and real problems because of this undiagnosed dyslexia. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I got diagnosed with it. And so I caused a disruption. I got kicked out of the class and I got moved into the, the German class. And I was in the German class with a woman called Mrs. Hooch and Turner and Hooch had just come out at the time. So I'm a, a 15 year old, no, 14 year old little rambunctious kid trying to cause as much problems as I could. And I got asked to leave that class as well. And the, the head teacher <laughs> left with no kind of stone to turn. He said, fine, go and join the drama class that was at the same time as them. I joined the drama, drama class and I ended up having a lot of fun. And it was a completely different way of expressing myself than I'd have, I'd have until that point. And the teacher, a phenomenal teacher, he used to be the head of the National Youth Theatre and um, is well-renowned as a, as a drama educator. He put me into some school plays, and it was that instant gratification. I got to clown around and muck around, and I got instant gratification by the audience applauding just for me being a clown, um, which was super fun and rewarding. But the biggest lesson to me came, we were doing a, a production of um, Hard Times by uh, Dickens, and I was asked to Leary, who's this kind of ringmaster. Um, and um, he uh, has all the sort of affectations that an actor would love is he's, he's got a limp and, and a lisp and and various different things 
And I just didn't take it seriously. And weeks went on in rehearsal. And I hadn't learned my lines, hadn't learned my lines. And one day we were doing um, a full production rehearsal. And it got to my point and I didn't know my lines and I'm reading from the script and Nigel Williams stopped the play and said, okay, we're cutting all of your scenes. Uh, Sleer is going to be reduced down to a bare minimum. Uh, step off stage, embarrass me in front of everybody. And uh, I sat in the wings feeling terrible. And we were about a week away from um, doing our first performance in school. And I went home that night and stayed up all night learning Sleary's lines and just wrote fashion, just learned them. Um, primarily because I just wanted to kind of show him and, and prove that I could do it. Mm. Um, I the next day and it got to the big Sleary speech and he said, okay, we're moving past this one. I said, no, can I give it a go? And I did it full with accents and, and lisps and everything else like that, word for word. And, and it was the first taste for me that if I really decide to work at this and, and dedicate some time to it, then there's not just the external gratification can come, but there's an internal gratification mm. of feeling like I'm and there's a sense of performance and using my creativity as something that is a, is a tool for me. Um, that gave me the bug. But in my school, when you were 17, I was nearly 18 in my final year of university, in, in, of A-levels, you had to go to careers advice and the careers advice lady um, said, what do you want to be when you leave school? And I said, I'd like to be an actor. And she laughed. She literally laughed and we hashed out what realistic um, paths would be. And my brother's a fighter pilot in the Royal Air Force. I had a, a friend in the army. So I decided to go Navy and uh, decided to go Royal Marines. And so I went to the Royal Marines um, potential officers course, a three day course to see if I have the potential to be an officer. And I failed the course. Um, but they said I had the potential and they said, uh, come back when you've got a degree. Uh, we'd be really interested in you when you're 21 and got a degree and we'll keep your name on record. So I just went to university solely to get a degree to become a Royal Marine. And the easiest thing to me was sport. I was into martial arts at the time and I was about to become into boxing. And so I went to university thinking I'm going to do three years of a sports degree, finish that and it'll be a life on the ocean waves. Mm -hmm. And Months into being in the degree, I was like, why the hell do I want to be in a Royal Marine? There's not a part <laughs> to do this job, but I just kind of got in rut. And so I saw out the university um, and found boxing and fell in love with boxing. I was boxing at a high competitive level and won a couple of titles um, for the university. Got a scholarship to do a master's degree. Stayed on at the university doing a master's degree in sports science, still not knowing what the hell I wanted to do when I grew up, whenever that was. Mm. And every year we had a sports personality of the, uh, um, award at the university because we were a sports university. And I'd been nominated that year for winning a British university's title as a boxer. And afterwards we all stood around the piano singing songs a bunch of us and there was a woman who was the head of the welsh college of music and drama and she heard me sing and she said have you ever thought about being an actor and i said actually funnily i did want to be an actor before i ended up on this path and she said well we're holding open auditions next week if you'd like to come along i'd save you a space for an open audition to come to the university uh, to study music and drama and so i worked my ass off um working on a monologue and a song. And I went in there super confident. Finally, my course is corrected and this is gonna be the way it's gonna happen. And I stood in front of the panel of three judges and um, started my monologue, which was a monologue, a Stephen Burkhoff monologue from the, his play E, um, which is very London and very uh, sweary. And 
I maybe got 45 seconds into the monologue and they stopped me and said, clearly you've got no training. We don't think that you've got a future as an actor and uh, asked me to leave. And again, that fire was lit. And I was mm. like, okay, then. And so I spoke to friends and said, I don't know how to get into acting. And one of them suggested I write a play. And one of them who's a musician buddy of mine said, why don't you write a musical because you enjoy musicals. So I was working on the door in some really rough clubs in Cardiff, but on the downtime in between doing my master's degree and working on the door and boxing, I was writing this musical and I would have a dictaphone in my pocket on the door. <laughs> I'll be telling you can't come in and then I'll be going off singing these little songs into the dictaphone. <laughs> and me and my buddy uh, recorded 21 songs on a CD. Um, he was the musician. And then I traveled to London and uh, we sent it into a competition. It came third in the competition. A producer heard about it. We did a prepared read-through of it for the producer. And then he called me into his offices uh, that following Monday and said, why did you write the musical? And I said, I wrote it to become an actor. And he said, the musical's raw. It needs a lot of work, which it did. I'd never written anything before. But mm -hmm. uh, um, He used to be a teacher at RADA, uh, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, and had formed his own um, uh, acting academy about 12 years before that. And he said, I'll give you a scholarship to come on to my acting uh, course. Um, I believe in you. And so he gave me a scholarship. So I did part-time um, acting course once a week uh, for two years. Worked in his production company a couple of days a week, learning the front, off, uh, front of office stuff and some of the other uh, background stuff that goes into the industry. And then graduated that 22 years ago. Wow. Do you know why? I... I often think that things happen for a reason and you know I you know you saying that you suffered from dyslexia at school you know do you think that if you didn't have that you would be in this same journey you know what I mean and yeah I completely agree with you everything kind of has mm. a path I know I'm a fighter and you know I was a boxer and martial arts and everything else like that but there's telling me no is the greatest fuel that I can get and of course, in this industry, the industry is an actor and a writer and a director. No is the thing that you hear predominantly. And there was a thing from the Screen Actors Guild that said their classification of a working actor is somebody who books one job in every 60 auditions. And that's the average actor wow. that works. So one job every 60 auditions. So if you have an audition a week, you're averaging one job every year and a bit um, out of that. And so you get a lot of no's as an actor and you get a lot of no's there. But dyslexia was this thing that forced a barrier in communication for me. And it's really interesting that my passion is in words. I love, I love writing and I love telling stories. And I think that because I was so embarrassed, like being in a classroom of 30 odd children and the moment it became my chance to read from the book, I could see the laughter on the faces and the elbow jabs because I was really st struggling on simple things. And mm -hmm. so I would go home and I would read aloud every night. I remember having Danny the Champion of the World was the, 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 the book that I d was determined to read. And I would read it aloud to myself every night and struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled. But I wanted to overcome this thing. And interestingly, I wanted to overcome it so that I didn't become embarrassed, but it ended up giving me the words and love of language that now has become a form of the, not only my creative outlet, but a way that I make money. Mm -hmm. uh, so and, definitely. And, and I've got to say as well, for me at school, 
um, I did drama and music. And the reason why I did that is because I suffered from a stutter. So I, I had speech therapy for about eight, nine years, and I couldn't say a single sentence without, you know, not being able to get it out. And I found that reading a script or singing a song, you didn't stutter, which I think is astonishing. And I went on and did a performing arts degree. Um, right. I, I, I've done a few few shows, but um, it's just too hard work for me. I, I, I'm, I'm in a, a normal job now, so I admire anyone that are, are, is working in this industry. Uh, but the thing because I mean, you had a stutter when you were in mm. school and you run a podcast, so you speak. <laughs> you know, there, there's yeah. a part part of your your life which is about speaking and speaking in front of an audience mm. which is which is the same as me going through the idea of dyslexia and now i write and i and i, and I work with yeah I, I think that we have a choice at any point when anything comes up that causes us problems and we're obviously it can break us or we can use it as a platform to excel yeah. i volunteer at a boxing gym just down the road from me um once a week and just work with some of the young fighters there and i was working with a young fighter um, who was, uh, we were chatting and he's doing an accountancy degree. And he said he struggled with numbers and he used to have numerical dyslexia. So he would look at numbers and he would see the wrong number. And so he, he failed uh, maths classes in Canada, failed maths class and, um, and was always terrible with numbers. And so he diligently worked on it and now he's doing an accountancy degree, uh, which is just, it just mm. kind of showed you, if, if you choose to become a victim and allow the thing to victimize you, then it will overcome it if you would. And I also boxed amateur for quite a few years uh, because because I was slightly overweight and um, stuttered. I was every bully's dream. So my dad took me to a boxing uh, ring uh, in Snenton in, in, in Nottingham. And later on, I had an audition for a Shane Meadows film called 24-7. And it's quite funny, actually, because um, I got the part, but then I couldn't do it because my dad wanted to take me on holiday. So uh, to this day, I'm gutted uh, because the character that I was going to play was based on me because Shane Meadows based the film around the boxing club. And uh, uh -huh. James James Corden played me on screen, which I think is hilarious. Um, yeah. But it just shows. But boxing, I mean, is a fantastic sport. I mean, you obviously won gold. Uh, you were very good weren't there any inklings that you know you wanted to pursue it or or yeah there were i i talked with my coach because i'd i'd won uh, two university national titles and then i'd won a welsh title and um competed on the welsh team um and was doing well um talking about the potential that i had and me and my coach were talking about the idea that it takes about 5 years when you become a professional to know if you're going to make any money so the plan was I was going to fight in the final of the Welsh ABAs, uh, the Welsh um, amateur titles. Um, I was expected to win that year. That would have put me into the Commonwealth. If I'd gone to the Commonwealth Games, you're naturally put onto the GB team for the Olympics and train for two years to see if you sustain that place and you end up going to the Olympics. If I went to the Olympics, would turn pro afterwards. If I didn't go to the Olympics, would turn pro anyway. And then you're looking at four to five year period to find out if you've actually got a monetary career as a boxer and so there was this four or five year plan that was laid out by me and my coach and I uh, competed in the ABAs and got knocked out first time I'd ever been put down on the canvas never been knocked out before this guy had been knocking everybody else out but I had superior skills uh, to him 
And I started with my hands here at the beginning of the fight. And by the end of the first round, my hands were down by my waist and I was playing and just doing little um, shots because yeah. I couldn't, he couldn't hit. And he hit me with a shot that I didn't see that just caught me right on the temple. I was knocked out before I hit the canvas. And I was out long enough for my mum, who was ringside, to climb into the ring. And she was the one that woke up. And it was televised on S4C, the, the Welsh Channel 4. So I had friends of mine in pubs watching the fight. And suddenly this road just stopped for me. Suddenly it was like, do I really want to do this? I've got you know an undergraduate and a master's degree in sports science. I have other options. And at that point, this woman had come along with this, um, the Welsh College of Music and Drama that had given me a glimmer of, no, maybe I want to course correct and go back on to being a life of creative. Um, because my life wasn't creative at that point. I was training five days a week as a boxer, working on the door three nights a week in some rough clubs, doing a master's degree I wasn't interested in doing. And I was fighting once every six or eight weeks competing as a boxer. And it was a million miles away from the life that I really wanted. Um, but yeah, so again, getting knocked out, you'd never think of that as a positive, but getting knocked out stopped this train that I was on and forced me to go, actually, what do I want to do with my life? And that was pursue a life in the arts. There you go. So dyslexia and getting knocked out changed your 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 journey. I mean, at what stage did you realise that actually I'm really good at acting? Um it's a, it's a really hard question because especially as a Brit, you know, Brits don't normally toot their horn. Americans is one of the things I love. I lived in the States for 16 years. They're very quick to sing their virtues. You know, it's, I'm, I'm excellent at this and I really admire that. But Brits, we have this tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> I, I got instant gratification from an audience when I was in school plays that I had something that was entertaining. Now, I didn't know if I was a good actor, but I was a good clown. I was good at hamming it up for the. So I got that idea. When I started the acting course uh, that Michael Armstrong ran, it completely destroyed all of that because it's, it's, it's breaking down all of these habits that you have to try to then build a craft in. And there was a good year in there that I was like, I'm terrible at this. I have, I have no shot at ever doing anything because I, I can't even recite a monologue that he's given me without messing it up. Um, but gradually my confidence started to come as I got the foundation of technique under there. And it was really the first time that I stepped on stage. The, the very first pro uh, project I did, I was understudy for um, the lead actor on a, in a Strindberg play called Miss Julie, which is a three-hander, turn of the century, 19th into uh, 20th century play that's about a footman and his... Uh, and, and the cook who are betrothed together and then the head of the household, Miss Julie, who decides to spend New Year's Eve slumming it down with them in the kitchen and she plays sexual games with Jean the, um, mm. the, the, and eventually they sleep together. But the moment they sleep together, the power divide switches and she's lost all of her power because at that point to sleep beneath your station would be a travesty and he has all the power because he's the one that uh, gains something from it. And it's a fascinating play. And I traveled the length and breadth of Britain as an understudy, never getting on stage, setting up the, um, the theater and then just watching from the wings. And then one day the lead actor had flown to LA for an audition and they asked him to stay for a callback. And he called and said, I'm not gonna make it back tonight for the performance, um, which threw everything into a panic apart from me. I was super excited and I got to go on stage and to go on stage and do a play that I've been watching and memorizing and working on for six months as an understudy 
and feel there's an electric moment that I'm sure you know from the courses mm-hmm. you've done and moment where you can feel the audience are unconsciously leaning in and listening to you're saying they're just wrapped in the story and I can't remember the moment but I remember thinking it at the time when I had it my character gives this monologue and I gave a pause and there was this energy in the air and I could feel that the entire theater were listening and waiting on this next word and then I carried on speaking and I, and I listened to that and I was like, okay, well, they're, they're not bored by me. Mm-hmm. So clearly there's something in there that means that there's something. But I think one of the things is I've, 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 never, I've never hubristically gone, I'm, I'm good at this because mm-hmm. there's something in every single character that gives me pause and makes me scared. Um, and... If, if it's not the character, there's a moment he gets to play. But Stargirl was a big one for me, just to bring it around to that. Stargirl, because I'd worked with Jeff Johns for uh, years before on Blade, and he asked me if I would come on and play this character. And initially I was like, this is a walk in the park, this character. I've done this a million times, this kind of guy. But then I started digging in and looking at who he was and the fragility and the reasons why he decided to become this person that he was after the death of his wife that he believes is a murder because... Uh, oversight by a government agency there's this drive and this hatred that is underneath him but masking that in this um, sense that he is charming and can turn people gave him so many layers I wanted to make sure those layers were evident and I was I was working on it and suddenly I felt this confidence while I was playing him that oh I know how to it, it felt like an experienced musician being given a piece of sheet music and being able to sight read it and just going, oh, I know how to play. Okay, my, so that was the first time I think I really sat and went, oh, I know my job now. I've done, I've eclipsed my 10,000 hours. I've done my 10,000 mm. hours. I now can enjoy playing the music. Mm. So let's talk about your career because your your career, if I'm right in saying, on IMDb, your first ever TV credit was Good Old Heartbeat, which is an awesome show. Yeah. And I mean, how how different uh, are you now as an actor, looking back from Heartbeat to now? I mean, how have you developed? I mean, what have you learned? Um, you know, are you still ground grounded as that actor back then? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm vastly different and exactly the same. I guess is the short answer because I remember being so excited to be on set so excited to be on set and see the way it worked and I mean, I, I'll never forget the, fir- the very first take I ever did there was a scene where my character he was this young boxer that was picked up by these two characters the comedic characters in the show and they thought they could turn a little bit of money by training this fighter and, and, and making some money off him being professional so they were training him and feeding him and everything else like this and there was a scene where I had one line and we were sat around a, a kitchen table and the entire scene took place between these two guys as he was making a fry up and giving me the best cut of bacon and the best bit of sausage <laughs> and the other uh, that he's he's getting the off cuts and they're chatting away and i had one line and uh, as they came in to do the line he, he, he said something and i said something but i overlapped the lines which is a no-no in television because if you overlap the lines when it comes to editing it they won't have a hard edit point. They'll put the overlap either the edit or the visual edit, but they want you to leave a space so that they have the ability to manipulate the scene. 
And I overlapped the line you, the way you naturally would, uh, doing a play or in conversation. And suddenly I heard cut from off screen and there was this melee of activity and I knew I'd done something wrong because I, I saw everybody kind of taking the bacon away and resetting everything. And I said, what happened? And the guy leaned across and he said, don't overlap lines. And I was like, oh, okay. And I sat back down. And the next take, I left a decent gap and, and, and said the line. But suddenly I was hooked and fascinated by the mechanics of how it goes into making. And that's still today. I would much rather be on set than in my trailer. I always say to my agents when we're negotiating a deal, and it's one of the last things they negotiate is the size of the trailer that you get. I'm like, I really don't care. I'll change the trailer. I want to be on set. The reason I'm here is I want to be on set and I want to see how the sausage is made. And I'm normally sitting with the directors and, and, and listening to the decisions they're making and talking to the cameramen and asking them about the lens sizes and everything else like that because that fascinates me, that world. Mm. That all plays into your ability as an actor because I think that, in my opinion, the key to being an actor, or at least the key to being a good actor, is to be completely aware of every piece of information in your surroundings and then ignore it to be able to focus on the task that is ahead of you. Because you need to be able to do a scene, but if a plane's going over, you know that they won't be able to use the audio, so you need to pause for a second and let the plane pass. Or if you notice that I'm blocking the light that's on the face of the actor in front of me, I need to move so I don't shadow them. Or if I'm blocking the camera for myself or whatever it happens to be. So you're completely present in this moment, but at the same time, giving yourself over to the scene to make it have life and feel real. And kind of spinning both plates at once is such a fun and exciting brain exercise. I, I normally leave set energized and exhausted because mm -hmm. I'm so by what we get to do and the brain exercise of the physicalities of doing it but it's also so exhausting and depleting that I normally kind of huge highs and then I plummet and hibernate for a little bit so I'm very much the same just 22 years of experience <laughs> and I've got to say um, you know a lot of people don't realize how much time actors actually just have to sit around dur during fil fil filming between takes and and stuff stuff like like that but what a long way you've come from heartbeat to bond james bond i mean what an awesome i miss so the sponsors of my show are called prop store and i missed out on buying your shirt from that film they were selling your shirt that you wore what? on screen yeah yeah and i missed out on it i really really did um so you have some awesome fight scene with with daniel craig i mean being part of such a an, an amazing franchise. I think I've got a picture here to put on the screen, um, uh, yeah. which, which is an awesome, awesome move, whatever you're doing. Um, you know, what was it like working on such a big franchise like Bond? Because you played Mr. Slate on the show, on the film. It was, it was surreal. Uh, to be honest, the, the, the bit that hit me the most was the audition process. The audition process was one of the hardest, longest, most drawn out auditions I've ever had. Um, and the casting director, Nina Gold, did, a, did a, an audition using dummy sides. So they do this often with big franchises. They'll use uh, a scene that doesn't exist, that's been created solely for that, so that you don't get any sport leaks with the information being given out. So I did an audition for dummy sides for this character that wasn't named Mr. Slate at the time and uh, was told that he has um, three or four decent scenes in it but one big fight scene and the fight scene is the big part that they're really focusing on then weeks later i found out that i had been shortlisted from the audition scene 
to 16 actors who are going to go to Pinewood to the W007 soundstage for a fight audition. I'd never had a fight audition before. And we all turned up, the 16 of us. And it was like, it was like stunt idol. There was, there was a table with a panel of judges and there was one of the producers, the fight choreographer, the stunt coordinator, the assistant coordinator, the um, casting director, the associate casting director were all there and then a couple of stuntmen. And they sat behind this panel and the stuntmen in front. They brought us in, they put us into groups of four and they taught us a three-on-one fight sequence. Uh, we got to rehearse the three-on-one fight sequence and then we presented it to the panel finished went away to this next room and we're all chatting and wondering what's going on then 12 of us were brought back you're like oh we're getting eliminated and over the course of two hours we did a couple of different fight sequences one-on-one we learned uh, cells as they call them uh, which is where you uh, you sell a strike to make sure it looks like you're being hit so you, you're doing all of this kind of stuff yeah. um, and so we practice cells we practice fours we did all this sort of stuff and gradually they whittled us down to five of us and then thankfully I was the one that ended up getting the job. And I was primarily, I believe, brought on there because I had a strong fight background and Daniel Craig, who openly admitted he doesn't have a fight background, but is a fantastic physical actor, didn't have the time to work with somebody else who didn't have a fight background. They needed somebody who can come and hit the ground running. Mm. And so I went to Panama and it was the easiest job I've ever had in my life. I was brought to Panama and I worked with Daniel Craig for probably half an hour, 45 minutes every single night. And then the rest of the time just sat around the pool in a, in a resort in Panama. And then I took two days of filming. So sat around the, the, the pool, drinking Mai Tais, do half an hour of fight training with Bond, and then rinse and repeat. And then the last two days were shooting the fight sequence in this dilapidated house. It was an incredible experience, and uh, not a bad life at all. And and you had a wonderful stunt double, which was uh, Bobby Dazzler, uh, yeah. Bobby Han- Hanton, that's been on the show uh, previously last last year. Uh, I mean, how much stuff were you allowed to do yourself on screen? And it was a, the nice thing. Like I, I I got to do everything apart from the smashes. When we were smashing, there's two smashes where at the beginning he smashes through. Bond throws me through um, a patio door, and at the end, he smashed me through a patio door. So um, Bobby did that. Um, and it was one of those that Bobby double for me. But to put the camera on our faces and have the camera see that we're the ones doing it just sells the story. And back then, mm. um, CGI face mapping wasn't as good as it was. Now in the recent Bonds, mm. they can put marks on the stunt doubles faces and they can put Daniel Craig's face onto the stunt doubles um, spoiler alert for anybody who thinks that <laughs> Daniel or Tom Cruise or anybody does all their stunts yeah. nobody I'm sure Bobby alluded to that when he was in mm. but team were amazing and we really worked on it and dialed in and having Bobby there watching the camera when we were doing the takes and then to come back and he would say your elbow was a little high on this bit or um, overextend on this one because it was too short. We, it didn't sell on the camera. So he was really there kind of coaching me and dialing me in to make sure the camera was looking as good as possible. So it was a full team effort from everybody. But he did the smashes and I did the punches and um, the fight sequence. I've got another picture here. Um, and it's Bond uh, cuddling you, I think. I don't know. <laughs> he looks mean there, but he was whispering into my ear, I'm sorry, I love you. Sweet nothings, sweet nothings from Daniel Craig cannot be, cannot be bad. Um, so yeah, you mentioned ear- earlier on Stargirl, and I've got to say congratulations. What an awesome show! Um, you know, DC has have 
has got quite a few shows out um, showing now. But Stargirl really stands out from the pack. It really, really does. Why do you think it does stand out as such a an awesome show? Jeff Johns. Jeff Johns is the, is the reason. Jeff Johns, for anybody who doesn't know, he's he's a DC comic book god. I didn't realize how big Jeff Johns was when I first met him because Jeff Johns started off. He was a um, he's one of the staff writers on Blade, the series. We did a TV version of Blade 16, 17 years ago, whenever that was. And it was when I first met him. And his first standalone episode, the episode that he wrote solely, um, was a standout for me in that one season that we got to shoot. So I knew he was an incredible writer. But we went to Comic-Con, the first time I'd ever gone to the San Diego Comic-Con. And we're a panel of judges. Uh, sorry, a panel of us there in, in Hall H. And, and the room is full with thousands of people. And we've just shown them a teaser of Blade and they've, they've gone crazy. And then it was open forum for people to ask questions. And it was one question about Blade and then one question to Jeff Johns. And it was amazing how there'd be one question, you know, why did you want to do this role, whatever it was, to one of the people. And then it was somebody saying, uh, in episode 274 of Green Lantern, can you explain why, how, da, 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 and it was this question. And they ended up having to say, no question, this is a Blade panel. And after multiple questions, I, I came out and I was speaking to David Escoya, who was um, one of the creators of the show, uh, and never realized how big he was. And he said, oh, walk around Comic-Con and see how many Jeff Johns comics exist. Because he was a writer primarily on, um, uh, he wrote on Flash, but he primarily wrote on Green Lantern. He was he was the first person other than the creator of Batman to do a Batman number one comic. He got to reinvent it and he got to do the same again with Superman. He got to do a Superman year one comic. And he's just this God within this world. So he knows the, the the medium so well. And he created Stargirl as an homage to his sister who died in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to create this story so that she gets to live and he gets to kind of be with her and all of the virtues that his sister had he put into Stargirl. And he's a child like me. He's a child of the 80s. And his touchstone for this one was Back to the Future. He wanted to have that wonderful fantastical but grounded family element and before we shot Stargirl he rented out a theater for a movie theater for everybody and we all went along and he showed us a a, um, back to the future so we all got into the tone of what he was trying to create and uh, we even had um, Leah Thompson who was uh, one of the actors in um, Mm -hmm. back to directed an episode and came back to direct an episode of season two so it's all Jeff Johns. He created a world that was purely created from love. It wasn't mm. uh, any other reason for making this show, but his love of the medium and his love of this character that he created for his sister. And I believe that that just comes across on screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And your character, I've got to say, I've got a picture of good old Icicle there. I mean, how surreal was it? Because obviously, you know, with with CGI and special effects, you being on screen with maybe dots on your face to actually seeing the finished article. How surreal was it to see your face like that on, on, on screen? So, I mean, this comes back to what you said at the beginning. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan first and foremost with all of this and I get giddy with it. So anytime you see, I see anything, you know, so I'm, I'm, I watch every trailer that comes out. I'm so, I'm so enamored to see what's coming up. Mm. And um, the, the visual effects team um, headed by a guy called Kevin, 
came up to me one day and we said, he said, we've done the pros, it's the, the, the flat image digital effects using your face. And it was this image. He said, this is what we got, the digital version. And looking at the detail that he put into it, because I had no idea how they were going to do it. Are they going to make me translucent? There was talk originally of doing it with prosthetics and with makeup. But watching for the first time, I got to sit with Jeff and he called me <coughs> and he said, we're 100% visual effects done on this one little scene. And it's the first time you see uh, Jordan McKen, Icicle Ice Up. And he showed me this scene and I just had this grin on my face. It was just so unintended cool. And mm. to have that character that I got to play, it was just an honor, you know? Mm. I mean, what was your favorite memory from the whole show, from being being on it as Jordan? What was your fav- fav- favorite moment? Of them, But the one memory that really sticks out for me is that, like I said, we did Blade the series 17 years ago and Jeff was a staff writer on that and one of the actors on that was Nelson Lee and Nelson Lee came in to play Dragon King. And so the very first scene that Dragon King had in the entire show, um, they'd organized it so it was the very first scene was with me and Jeff was on set. And so there was a moment where... Nelson arrived in his full Dragon King makeup, which is just spectacular, and he had this big hood on, and Jeff was there. We came and did a rehearsal for the scene, and then everybody left, and me, Jeff, and Nelson stood there, and I got emotional. It was just like, wow, we get to do this again after 17 years. How much of a that you know you do one show that was so important but you get to come back and act in scenes with him creating this thing and we 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 all had a little hug and had a little tear over it it was just this lovely little kind of kismet moment um that was perfect for me and have you kept anything from the show at all as like a memento i wasn't allowed to um (laughs) i wanted i wanted to keep the suits because the suits were incredible Mm. and they were all folk suits and, and all done but i wasn't allowed to keep any of the suits um and i wanted to keep his pendant the key the key pendant um and i wasn't allowed to keep that either unfortunately i think that they want to use that so that my son inherits it or something um so i they normally don't allow cameras on set um for obvious reasons with spoilers but i said to jeff i was like i know i'm one and done i i I know you're killing me at the end of this spoiler alert so uh, let me bring the camera in on the last week and I just I want to snap as many pictures so I've got memories to keep for yeah. that. So I've got tons of pictures of the crew. Mm. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit cautious on, on, on time. So I just wanted to uh, talk about your music uh, career because... What was the song that... Um, it was Kryptonite. Oh, okay, yeah. The reason being is my daughter's called Lois um, and there's a line in it where um, I'll, I'll, I'll fly you around the world and to the moon and back. And I literally say to her every single night, I love you to the moon and the stars and back again. And for some reason, I listened to it for the first time and I got choked up and I literally nearly had a tear in my eye, I was just fighting it back because it's such a beautiful song. And if anyone, you know, and I know obviously you 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 sell your CD uh, still on uh, neiljackson.me, but I urge everyone to go out on Apple Music, Spotify, and have a listen. I mean, what I mean, have you always written songs and performed, or is this some some something that you're still doing 
uh, because it's awesome. I mean, the other songs as well are fantastic. Yeah, the guitars, my guitars over there, so it's always there. I play it every day. Um, the album was an interesting one for me because there was a point within the first couple of years of acting where I was doing a lot of open mic uh, nights in London and playing a lot of songs, and I always wrote songs, and I had a ton of songs. And um, I was starting to contemplate whether or not I would look to pursue that as a career. And then I booked um, Alexander, the big Oliver Stone, Colin Farrell film, which was my first feature film, and that jettisoned me off in a different path. But music was always there and it was always a thing. And then about eight years ago, I did a pilot episode for NBC, for a new TV series for NBC. And I was playing this, uh, this uh, character in it, a uh, really interesting character. And we shot the pilot. The pilot went great. I went back to Britain to go and see my family after shooting the pilot. I came back. I arrived uh, at the airport and turned my phone on and my phone blew up and there was all these announcements that uh, NBC loved the show and it's picked up to 13 episodes and um, I was really excited because I'd had a little bit of a drought in my career at that point and mm. needed some and the idea that suddenly there's 13 episodes picked up is uh, I'm doing the maths on the money that I'm going to make from that and it's all really exciting and then there was a message from my manager saying please call me. So I called my manager and she said, she said, I'm really sorry to say they're, they're recasting your role. Um, the network felt they didn't have enough uh, chemistry with the lead actress. And so they're recasting my role. They're going to reshoot all the scenes that I did in the pilot and I'll no longer be in the show. And it broke my heart. And one day in the trade magazines, in, in uh, Variety and Hollywood Reporter, there was a story, Neil Jackson gets fired from NBC show. It was like, uh, so I'm getting calls from people saying, what did you do? Why were you fired? And it just crushed me at a point where I was struggling anyway because I hadn't been working uh, a great deal. And then to come suddenly get this gift and then get it taken away in such a brutal fashion. And so I had a friend of mine back in the UK, a guy called Nick Mailing, who I went to school with, who's now a music producer. And he did heard a couple of songs I put on YouTube and said, they're really good. If you ever want to record them, let me know because I'd love to produce them. And I felt like I wanted to do something that was purely mine an artistic adventure, um, adventure that was just mine uh, without having to ask for permission from anybody else. So I reached out to Nick and I said, can we do the album? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm actually free in a week for two months. I said, okay, I'm coming over in a week. So I flew over uh, from LA to the UK, stayed in a travel lodge for six weeks. And for six weeks, I would go to the studio that he worked out of. And uh, we recorded this album. And it was... Just a, it was a reclamation for me. It was me kind of reclaiming myself from the industry that stole a little bit of that spark over the course of a few years and that losing the job and just creating art for my own sake. And if I wanted to put strings in, there's nobody telling me we don't have it in the budget. Um, and so you songs where I wanted strings and he said, we can do it synthetically. And I was like, no, I want the entire album to be acoustic. Every single album on there, I want to be played for my own sake. Cause I don't know if I'll ever get to do another album. And a friend of mine, who's a mu uh, music composer for films, um, phenomenal composer. Um, uh, he has ended up doing work on big superhero stuff from guardians of the galaxy all the way through. Um, he, uh, I composed the music and then he scored it for me and we got strings, uh, but, um, we got a cellist a, um, uh, and a couple of violas and a violin to come in and perform them. And it was just me and my music and me doing something that was for me solely. And 
finished the album, felt amazing about it, did a, a launch gig at the Troubadour in London, which went great, and we got some lovely reviews from people about the album. And I was talking to Nick about the idea of touring and how do we sell the album and get it going. And uh, I booked another job. Uh, I think it was Sleepy Hollow I booked. Um, and I booked Sleepy Hollow and I said, I'm going to have to put things on pause. And I went on to set on Sleepy Hollow and I went, this is, this is what, my passion's in storytelling. I love storytelling. And I don't have the time or the real desire to be going out touring as a musician to try mm-hmm. to write my music. That's not the goal for me. So um, I uh, released the album and uh, advertised it myself, but just let it do its thing. And it did well. I was really happy with the way it released, but really it was just this this cleansing, this reclamation, as I said, of just trying to restore my sense of creativity after it being stolen a little bit by Hollywood. And so that 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 first album was a huge passion for me. And then there was a couple of other songs, and I got a buddy of mine in LA who's a producer, and I said, I really want to put some of these songs out, one of them being Kryptonite. And I said, but I'd like a more pop vibe as opposed to the acoustic folk, folk vibe of the previous mm-hmm. ones. And uh, we worked on that and two other songs and released them as an EP. Well, thank you so much. It's an awesome song. And uh, I'm thinking, could I do it as like the first dance, uh, the father and daughter dance? I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm thinking of possibilities. But it, isn't but... it nice that you know that, you know, your work on screen and your music, you know, touches people and moves people and they can escape for that that moment in time and just... You know, it brings emotions, which I think is magical. I mean, it's one thing acting on screen, but then it's that work that's always going to be remem- remembered. And it's just fantastic. It's just an amazing career. It's I get emotional thinking about it because I've had several moments in my life where people have reached out to me and about how a performance that I've done or a short film that I've made or music that I've written has meant something to them. There was this wonderful um, young lady uh, at a comic con one year and uh, she was lining up um, to, to get a signing from me and she, she lined up to get a signing and um, I, I signed the thing and she was incredibly nervous and I, I tried talking to her but she got incredibly nervous and she was mm. very, very awkward. And then she went away and I was like, oh bless her. And then the next day she came back and she was in the line again. I was like, oh, you're back. And uh, she said, yeah, I just wanted to give you this. And she gave me a postcard. And uh, I said, oh, so thank you very much. And said it to one side and then carried them to the signings. When the signing was over, I read the postcard and she said that her parents had died two years ago. Mm-hmm. Died in a car crash. And the only thing that got her through it was watching a show that I'd done on repeat. And my character in the show, it was a show called Make It or Break It, and my character in the show was this coach who was coaching young girls and he was helping them overcome various obstacles of what it means to be a young woman and a human being and everything else like that. And she said that she watched the show on repeat for a year and it was the thing that got her through the trauma of losing her parents. And I burst into tears, it makes me emotional now, I burst into tears reading this. And I went out into Comic-Con and I'm so glad I found I found her and I gave her a hug and we talked for a little bit. But the idea that this, anything, this this story, this idea, this song touches somebody and means something to them more than just a piece of entertainment. It means something that, I mean, that's, you do it, right? That's that's mm-hmm. why we're fans of, of music and, and art, because it, it transcends something that we exist in with our daily lives. And, and the idea that that means everything to me.
Mm. And 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 it's like for me when I was a kid, because with the stutter and being being quite hev- heavily bullied, I found my escapism in the original Superman movies. I would watch uh, them all the time, and and that that for me is is always been a love is is the originals. But before we finish this wonderful interview, uh, we've got to talk on the twenty second of December. We've got a new movie coming coming out on our screens, The King's Man. It looks absolutely epic. I've got a poster here to show everyone. It just looks amazing. Um, and um, I know that you've mentioned in previous interviews about uh, scenes on No Man's Land, uh, which mm. sound epic. I mean, if you could just give us a rundown of, or if you can, I'm not sure if you're allowed to, uh, who you play and a bit about the movie. The story, for anybody who's seen Kingsman, the the, the franchise that was um, set up um, several years back, this is a prequel to that about the origins of the Kingsman franchise. And um, it's set in World War One, right at the onset of World War One, and about how Ray Fiennes, his character, um, uses some of his spy network to try to scupper what's going on underneath World War One with these ultra villains that are all in it. Um, and I play this guy called Captain Forrest, who is a high-ranking um, British Army um, guy who is tasked with getting a piece of information that can turn the tide of the war. Um, and it all takes places in the trenches in World War One, and the sets that they created were just epic. I mean, I've, I've got videos which I'll release closer to the movie on Instagram that is just me walking through these trenches that were built. And everywhere you look feels like you're part of that world. And it went on for hundreds and hundreds of meters as you're walking through this labyrinth. And they converted a massive area, like half a mile square area of um, land just on the outside of London and turned it into no man's land, covered it in mud and barbed wire and everything else so that when you step over the trenches that were practical, um, you were in this space. And it's one of those jobs that's just no acting necessary. I mean, once you're in the outfit, and I've got a, a wonderful moustache in it, and very, very, very plummy English accent from the time because he's Captain Forrest, <laughs> and uh, all you have to do is immerse yourself in the sort of the, the fantasy of this world that has been created. And true to form, I mean, one of the things that with the Kingsman franchise that uh, I very much, and I think everybody connected to, were just these incredible fight sequences that he did, these long takes, um, especially the church scene with... Um, uh, what's his name? Colin, um, blank on his name for, in the first for, one. Colin. Oh no! I, uh, oh no! Um, for, Beach as well. Oh, I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, it's terrible. Um, but a huge fight sequence that he did in that. Um, and uh, true to form, that's the kind of fight sequence we've got in this one. I mean, it's it's absolutely epic in scope, and uh, I think it's going to be super entertaining. I've seen clips of it when I've done ADR, when I've been in doing audio. Um, stuff I've seen clips of the stuff that I've done. It looks amazing, so I'm really excited you, to see that. One. And are you going to go to a premiere for it, or is it going straight to screen? Uh, we don't know yet because with the way things with COVID, I'm, I'm doubting it'll be happening. We're waiting for them to find out um, if if they're doing some sort of event. But it might end up just going straight to screen. But either way, I'm, I'm excited because it, it, the can got pushed a lot. It was supposed to come out uh, February this year. And then it got moved to summer this year, and now it's got moved to December, and it's finally holding in December, which is great. So to think that a movie I shot two and a half years ago, um, we shot this. And this one, 
I'll release some stuff on Instagram a little closer to the time. This one was the most grueling fight sequences I've ever done. I mean, the Bond one was grueling, but this one is grueling for a completely different reason. And one of the reasons the fight sequence is grueling is it's in no man's land and in the mud, mm. but it's all, we weren't allowed to stand up. You had to stay crouched because if you stood up, snipers would be able to get you. So you're staying crouched, which is just a quad burner. And my, my legs, I, I would come back and have a pack bags of peas on my knees and on, on my quads after every one, because you're staying in this crouched position and trying to do this fight sequence while not standing up, but the fight sequence is intense and there's mud and everything else like that. It was, uh, it was an amazing experience and um, it looks no, that's awesome. Uh, Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure speak, speak, speaking with you. Uh, I know you've got a busy day ahead. Um, so how can fans follow you um, on social media? Um, Instagram, Twitter? At, at the Neil Jackson on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, neiljackson.me is, uh, is the website where there's updates and information. There and they can there. buy the album. So they can buy the album from neiljackson.me. Uh, buy it enjoy it and i look forward to uh, maybe some more music in the future it's always there and i'm always writing and playing stuff so it would just be a matter of finding time to get in the studio and do it but i'd love that that's awesome neil look after yourself keep safe for you and your daughter that's beautiful that makes me very oh. happy <laughs> and she actually likes it normally she likes this odd japanese sort of she's eight years old so it's like she likes all this gacha life but she actually, okay. um, when when she heard you sing Lois, her head just went up and went, what, what, what's, what's going on? And it's great, it's great. You've been listening to Be More Super, the podcast. It was kind of a crazy, fun experience. I love the show, guys. You're awesome. Listen, my whole family loves it, man. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and share with your super friends. In my world, it means hope.